Last week we began on Sunday evenings a series of lessons, a new expository series from the book of Colossians, the book that has been called, the epistle that has been called the most Christ-centered epistle uh, in Scripture. And there's a reason for that because the primary purpose of this epistle of Paul to the Colossians was to was to insulate them against a Judaic Gnostic heresy that uh, had plagued or was seeking to plague the Colossians, uh, in which the Christ was not being exalted uh, as he should be, and so he exalts the Christ in this great epistle to counter the uh, false teaching of this uh, Colossian heresy, as it has been called, a mixture of Judaism and Gnosticism and, and paganism. And as we get further into the book, we'll be able to see some of the characteristics of this heresy as the Apostle Paul alludes to it. But primarily, rather than dealing with the heresy itself in detail, he seeks to exalt the Christ as the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Uh, something that the Gnostics and some of these others were denying because they believed that it was impossible for deity and humanity uh, to ever have contact and that there could not be direct contact with deity and humanity and therefore there had to be a series of angelic beings uh, by which God or deity ultimately approaches humanity. And they certainly could not accept the fact that God himself a member of the Godhead, the Christ, became flesh and dwelt among men. That was totally foreign to their thinking and to their teaching. But the Apostle Paul counters it. And, of course, we well know that deity did become humanity, that God did come in the flesh, as John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, reminds us, and down at verse 14 of that gospel account, the Word, the living Word, the Christ became flesh and dwelt among men. Us. And so this great book, this great epistle, one of the prison epistles written from a Roman prison cell, is one that exalts the Christ. We introduced the book briefly last time in our initial lesson, and we looked at the first uh, eight verses of, of chapter 1. And in those eight verses, Paul, with his customary greeting of grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, then expresses thanks thereafter to the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ and mentions that he's praying always for them, for the Colossians in verse 3. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love, and we talked about how it is that we hear of faith and love. It's not by word of mouth, but it's by deeds that are done that people show their love, that people demonstrate their faith. Faith has to manifest itself. And then he mentions the hope that is laid up, reserved, appointed for you in heaven. And how did they hear about that hope? How did they uh, hear about anything that produced their faith and, and generated their love? It was through the word of the truth of the gospel, the all-sufficient, all-powerful word of God that had come to them in verse 6, as he said, as it has in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit. From when? From day one, as it also among you has done so since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. At verse 7, he mentioned Epaphras, a fellow servant, a faithful minister of Christ, uh, whom it is believed was one of the uh, Colossians, that that was his home congregation, uh, if you will. And he expressed that Epaphras had also brought him word of their love in the Spirit. And last time we talked about that expression, love in the Spirit. To love in the Spirit, capital S, means to love in accordance with with how the Spirit teaches us to love. How do we know about love? 
How do we know about the love of God? How do we know about the love of Christ? How do we know anything about deity? How do we know anything about the will of God except through the Spirit who has delivered the Word of God to us? And so we are to love in the Spirit, that is to love in accordance with the teaching of the Spirit as it has now been finally and completely revealed to us upon the pages of the New Testament. Now these were the things, some of these earlier verses express the things that prompted a prayer, a prayer about which we'll see more tonight as we look at verses 9 through 12. The promptings of the prayer we've already seen in the first eight verses, but now we're going to look at the particulars of Paul's prayer for the people of God. Paul's prayer for the people of God. That's how we would, uh, would entitle this section of Colossians chapter 1. Verses 9 through 12. Let's read the verses and then we'll come back and see the, the particulars of this prayer. And they are rich indeed and so pertinent and relevant to us in this generation and in every generation to come for as long as time stands. That's the beauty of Scripture, isn't it? It's relevant. For this reason, verse 9, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. These are the verses we're going to look at tonight as we see the particulars of Paul's prayer for the people of God. And the first of those particulars is perception of his will. And that's really what we have in verse 9. Look at it again. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask what, Paul? That you may be, here it is, filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. This particular of Paul's prayer is that they would have a perception of his will. It's so important that we understand uh, the fullness of what Paul is saying here, that they be filled with not just knowledge, but knowledge tied to wisdom, knowledge tied to spiritual uh, understanding. But notice that Paul's prayer is not for them to have a spattering of biblical uh, knowledge, uh, a nominal amount of uh, biblical knowledge. This prayer is indeed uh, just so full of, uh, of uh, emotion and desire for them to be everything that they can possibly be in Christ. There is nothing here that speaks at all about the possibility of pleasing God in Christ by not applying oneself fully and completely to the things that Paul prays for for these people here because his prayer for these Christians would be his prayer for us today, obviously, that every child of God would also strive to be what? Filled with the knowledge. And the word knowledge there is the knowledge that is full uh, knowledge. It is a word that indicates more complete knowledge. In other words, Paul's desire is that, that you not be a daily Bible reader alone, in other words, but that you be filled with the knowledge, knowledge of his will and that you apply that will to your life, that you exercise the wisdom 
that comes from the Word of God. The wisdom that comes from God, not in a direct, miraculous way. That's not what we anticipate. That's not what we should anticipate because it's not what we're going to get, some, uh, some direct uh, wisdom from God. But through the Word of God, we gain that wisdom. And also through the providence of God as he allows us to experience things that will produce in our lives wisdom if we will be filled with his knowledge and be receptive to, to that wisdom that we can gain from the association that we have with brothers and sisters in Christ, from the application of his written will to our lives. Seek not just to know, but seek to understand and to apply. Be not foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, Paul wrote in one of his other prison epistles to the Ephesians. Do not be unwise. Do not be unwise, which is in effect to say be wise. And how is one wise? By understanding what the will of the Lord is. And the command carries with it the implication that understanding is a possibility, that it can be a reality. There's so many people today, tragically, who dismiss the word of God by simply saying, I just simply can't understand the Bible. It's just too complicated for me. I just simply cannot understand it. That flies in the face of the Bible's command itself to understand the will of the Lord. And it is certainly uh, flying in the face of this admonition specifically here that we're looking at in verse 9 where the Apostle Paul says, I want you to be filled, filled with the knowledge the greater knowledge is the word for knowledge here of his will with wisdom and spiritual understanding. I've often said that I could, if I had the capability, I could perhaps, and there are those who can, memorize the entire New Testament, for example, know every word of it, be able to quote every word of it. But the ability to quote scripture is not necessarily joined to keeping the scripture or understanding, rightly dividing the word and applying it in wisdom to our lives. But what will that lead to if we are determined that we're going to be filled with the knowledge, that we are going to use the wisdom that we can gain from his word, that we are going to rightly divide that word, that we are going to apply ourselves to spiritual understanding? To what will that lead? It will lead to a pleasing pattern of life. And that's what we find in verse 10. That, in other words, in order that. What have we just seen? The knowledge of his will with wisdom and spiritual understanding. That, verse 10, in order that you may walk worthy of the Lord. Stop right there for a moment. Can you walk worthy of the Lord without knowledge of his will? No. Can you walk worthy of the Lord without application of his will? No. Therefore, merely knowing what it says will not please God. Knowing what it says and having the wisdom and applying oneself to the wisdom and spiritual understanding, that application will enable you to walk worthy of the Lord. And certainly that should be the determination of every single one of us who is a child of God tonight, that our lives would be becoming of the Lord. In other words, that, that it would bring honor to God, that our lives would bring honor to God, that our lives would bring honor uh, to Christ. You know, 
Paul in the Philippian letter, another of the prison epistles, expressed some similar, some similar thoughts when he wrote in chapter 2 of that Philippian letter beginning at verse 14, Do all things without murmuring and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God, without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. That's walking worthy of the Lord. To shine as a light in this world that is darkened by sin. And is it possible to be fully pleasing to the Lord? Of course it is. How do I know it is? Because Paul says it is. That's the next phrase. By walking worthy of the Lord and what? Fully pleasing Him. Does that mean that I can live a sinless life? No. I'm a human being. I'm going to fall short. But because of Christ and the sacrifice that He made and the ability that I have to avail myself of the, of the saving power of that sacrifice, I can be complete in Him. And that's what we'll see in a letter verse in this very epistle. That we are complete in Him. That's Colossians 2 and verse 10. You are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. It's only by being complete in Him that I can walk fully pleasing Him. That is, walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him. Not by being perfect, not by being sinless. That was the whole problem with the law of Moses. It was a law that could not be kept by human beings and therefore demanded that something be done in order to take up the slack, as it were, between the inability to live a sinless life and the sinlessness of God and Christ and that nature. And the only sacrifice that could close that gap, bridge that gap, was the sacrifice of the sinless Son of God. But in Him, I can be fully pleasing to Him. Oh, not sinless, no, but as I walk worthy of the Lord, which is equivalent to walking in the light, as John writes in 1 John 1 and verse 7, and as I regularly confess my sins to the throne of heaven through Jesus Christ, my mediator and high priest, that blood keeps on cleansing so that I keep on pleasing, keep on pleasing Him. And my desire, my determination, overriding determination every day that I live should be to walk worthy of the Lord. To live a life that is becoming of the gospel of Christ, that is worthy of the gospel, and that fully pleases Him. That statement, fully pleases Him, reminds me of another statement in that great 11th chapter of Hebrews concerning Enoch. And in the sense of walking, it was also said of Enoch that he walked with God, Genesis 5:24. But in Hebrews 11:5, Enoch is mentioned there among the great heroes of the faith. And of him it is said, by faith Enoch was translated so that he did not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Enoch pleased God in the patriarchal dispensation. How so? By walking with God. What kind of walk was it? Verse 6, but without faith it's impossible to please him. So he pleased God by walking with God by faith. And as we have said, it had to be a walking faith to please God. It had to be a working faith to please God. And we'll talk more about that in a few moments. It had to be a worshiping faith in order to please God. And it's that same kind of faith today that pleases God. And faith alone, without that accompanying walk, cannot be pleasing 
and will not be pleasing to God. But he further describes this walk worthy, that's worthy of the Lord. This walk that fully pleases him. What kind of walk is it? It is a walk that is, that is fruitful. Here's the pleasing and productive pattern of life, being fruitful. There's, there's productivity, being fruitful in every good what? The word that so many don't want to hear, in every good work, in every good work. And how often have I said from this pulpit that it is amazing to me to see how hard so many will work to discount the need to work in terms of what the scriptures teach and what I must do in my life as a Christian. The life of a Christian is a life of works from beginning to end. From beginning to end. Ephesians 2.10, coupled with Revelation 14.13, make that abundantly clear. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works. Created in Christ Jesus. Christians, when we become Christians, that's when we're created in Christ. Paul says it's for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And the Revelation 14, 13, Right blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Yea, saith the Spirit that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. I'm created for works and after I die my works follow me. That's works from beginning of the Christian life to the end of the Christian life. So say the Scriptures. And yet, so many in the religious world work so very hard to say we don't need to work. We don't need to work. But what they confuse tragically is works of the law of Moses, will, which will do no good because that work has been, that law has been nailed to the cross. Works that I would devise to try to earn my salvation, those works are no good. I could boast about my salvation if I could work out my own salvation in that sense, and yet Paul says we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. How? By working the works that God has prepared and walking in them. Not my own works, but the works that God has prepared. And that's the only way I can show my faith. That's the only way I can walk with God, worthy of the Lord. That's the only way I can be fully pleasing to Him, is by being fruitful in every good work. And then notice this, and increasing in the knowledge of God. What does that tell me? It tells me that until the time that I draw my dying breath, if I'm physically able, I'm to be laboring lovingly to increase my knowledge of God, to know God better every day that I live. What's the problem in the world today? People don't know God. People don't know God. There are those who think they know God. There are those who will tell you they know God, and they'll, they'll describe God to you, and they'll tell you that their God is a loving God who's not going to send anyone to hell. They don't know God because that's not the God of this universe and that's not the God of the Bible. Know, therefore, know the God of thy father. Remember David's charge to Solomon on David's deathbed? Know the God of thy father and serve him with a perfect heart and a willing mind. You've got to know him before you can serve him. But the knowledge of God should increase every day. And our appreciation and our love for God should increase every day. But it will not increase every day without effort on our part. And that gets us back to what? Being filled with the knowledge and wisdom and spiritual understanding. So that we can walk worthy of the Lord. So that we can be fully pleasing to Him. So that we can be fruitful in every good work. And increasing in the knowledge of God. 
And what's that going to lead to? That's going to lead to power. The power to be patient. That's verse 11. Right after saying increasing in the knowledge of God, Paul continues, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power. Strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power. And where does that power reside? That glorious power of God. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, remember? For it, Paul said, is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is revealed the righteousness of God from faith to faith. The power of God. The power to gain the strength that we need is found in the all-sufficient, glorious gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But notice something here in this verse. It's the power to be patient. Do you need any patience? Do any of us need any patience? And the word patient here is the idea of standing up and enduring under trial and making it to the end. How important is that? How important is it that we have the strength that we need, the power that we need that will lead us to be patient, meaning standing up as we should under difficulties and trials and adversities that this life inevitably brings us. It's so important that remember we've talked about more than once Peter's statement, 2 Peter 2, 20 beginning, about those who turn their back upon the Holy Commandment once they have been delivered, once they have become Christians and they turn their back on the Holy Commandment once delivered, it has happened to them according to the true proverb, the dog turning to its own vomit again, the sow that was washed to its wallowing in the mire, better for them never to have been born. If you're a Christian tonight, you have begun a journey that you dare not end prematurely. Surely you wouldn't end it prematurely. If you do, it would have been better, believe it or not, never to have begun it. Would you have been lost if you had never begun it? Yes. But there is an additional sobering responsibility that is laid upon those who have turned their backs upon the world and come to God and, through Jesus Christ and have lived the Christian life to a point and then suddenly... Or slowly, but ultimately, they abandon that life. Better never to have known than to have known and turned away. So if you're a Christian tonight, apply yourselves to these things because you dare not turn your back upon what you have begun. And why would you want to? And you won't want to if you follow this instruction. It's powerful. It's powerful indeed. Paul's prayer here for the people of God. But not just patience, but also long-suffering is mentioned here. And that word literally is the idea of being long before anger comes. Being long-suffering. Patient, meaning standing up under trial and difficulty, being steadfast, having that foundation that you need to keep you going and standing strong, and long-suffering 
as you deal with your brothers and sisters, as you deal with your fellow man, you are very slow. You are very slow to passion, the kind of passion that would be improper and wrong. And undergirding all of this, joy, with joy. Why wouldn't I want to spend time, a great deal of time, with something that is going to do for me what Paul says this will do for me? Why would I be a casual reader? Why would I be a casual student of something that is going to enable me to be able to be steadfast and strong, slow to, to in, inappropriate anger and passion, and give me a joy that is unspeakable, that it undergirds me, a rejoicing in the Lord, as Paul elsewhere wrote in the Philippian letter more than once, that nothing can take away from me. Why wouldn't I want that? But I don't get it simply by passage of time. I get it by application of myself to the study of the Word of God and by the times like these that I spend with brothers and sisters in Christ, encouraging one another, lifting one another up, stirring one another up to love and good works, Hebrews 10 and verse 24. The power to be patient, another of the particulars of Paul's prayer for the people of God. But then we see in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us, as the New King James says, King James says, made us meet or proper, the idea, qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. Oh, what a passage. Why wouldn't we give thanks to the Father who has done this for us? He has qualified us to be partakers of the divine inheritance. Qualified us. We'll talk more about that in a moment. What kind of inheritance? The inheritance of the saints. Not the inheritance of, of the uh, Israelites as they moved toward Canaan land of old. That was an inheritance that they longed for, that they wanted, and it was a land that flowed with milk and honey. But this is a different kind of inheritance. This is the eternal inheritance of the saints that awaits the saints in the light as he is light, we will one day see him as he is, as we enjoy that inheritance. But, but to be partakers, we have to be qualified. And who is it that has qualified us? The one who has qualified us is the Father, through the Son. Think about that with me for just a moment. Think about that in relation to what people say about our contention that there are certain things you must do in order to become a Christian, beyond simply believing. Especially when it comes to the matter of, of baptism. And there are those who will readily agree that we need to believe. They'll even go so far as to say we'll, we need to repent. Even if they contend that we're saved by faith alone, they'll still contend we have to repent, which frankly doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? It's contradictory. And maybe they'll even go so far as to say confession is a good thing, if not necessary, to salvation. But when it comes to baptism, they balk. They balk at baptism. And they say, no, when you do that, 
And when you say that you've got to do that, then you are trying to earn your salvation by your own works. Who is it that baptizes us anyway? Well, you say, well, it's whoever does the baptizing. Well, in one sense, yeah, but no. <laughs> Jesus baptized many, didn't he, during his earthly ministry? And yet he never literally, physically baptized a soul, and yet the Scripture says he baptized many. Who did the baptizing? Well, his disciples. But the Scripture attributes the baptizing to, to Jesus. Where am I going with this? <laughs> Who is it that qualifies us? God through Christ. How? By applying the blood of Christ when we just simply submit to the qualifications that he has set forth. Believing with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ, repenting of your sins, confessing Jesus to be the Christ, and then being buried in baptism. It's God who cleanses. It is God who works that work of salvation. What am I doing in that process that could be construed as earning my salvation at all? Nothing. I'm just submitting to a burial where God is carrying out the operation. Remember, remember how the Apostle Paul, how the Apostle Paul in this same epistle describes the process of purification, if you will, that the Colossians had, in, had gone through. In him, verse 11 of chapter 2, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, a spiritual circumcision he's talking about, and then he describes it further in verse 12. Listen to it. Buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him, listen to it, through faith in the what? In the working of God. Who does the work when we're baptized? God does the work. Man says we do the work. The Bible says God does the work. How can you say that we earn salvation by our baptism or try to earn salvation by baptism because we're seeking to work a work in that process when it's said in Scripture that God's the one who does the work? All we are doing is meeting the qualifications that He has set forth. He has qualified us to be partakers. How did He do it? By applying the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, when we're buried in baptism. After our faith has led us to repent and confess Him, and then we submit to that burial with faith in the working of us, faith in the working of God, who qualifies us then in that process to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in life. We rise from that watery grave of baptism where God has done His work and cleansed us from sin through the blood of His Son. We rise as partakers of the greatest inheritance that has ever been promised to man, the inheritance of the saints in light. And as long as we keep walking in that light as He is in the light, then we have the full assurance of that inheritance. How can people say that baptism is an effort on our part to work or earn salvation when it's God who does the work in that process? And that's what this scripture and others remind us of.
But finally, there are some products of being partakers that we can have right now. Oh, and they're precious products. Pardon and peace. Are those things precious? How precious is pardon? Look at verse 14 as we move over some in the chapter. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. There's pardon. Pardon comes to those who are partakers of that inheritance of the saints in light. And what about peace? Look over at verse 20. And by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Tonight, if you're a partaker of that divine inheritance, you possess products that are precious indeed. One is pardon. How precious is that to know that you've been forgiven? And the result of that pardon is obviously peace. Peace, perfect peace. In this dark world of sin, the blood of Jesus whispers peace within. And it's that blood of Jesus that keeps that peace within as we keep up our walk in the light with him. If you're not walking in the light tonight because you have not become a partaker of the inheritance of the saints in the light because you have not undergone the process by which you become that partaker of that inheritance, a belief in Jesus as the Christ that leads you to repent, to confess him as the Christ and then to be buried with him in baptism. We plead with you to do that, that you might have that inheritance promised to you, that you might have that pardon from sin, that you might enjoy that peace, that you might walk worthy of the Lord, strengthened with all power for patience and long-suffering, that you might enjoy every spiritual blessing in Christ. And that's where all the spiritual blessings are, in Christ. But to be in Christ, one must be buried with Him and raised with Him, as the Scripture so clearly teaches. If you haven't done that, we plead with you to do it. And if you have, but you know tonight you're not continuing to walk worthy of the Lord, and the world has commanded your attention and has caused you to stray and to sin in a way that needs to be confessed, repented of in a public way, we plead with you to do that tonight, as we'll pray with you and for you to the God who will restore to you pardon and peace and make you once again a partaker of that divine inheritance. As we stand to sing, will you come?